everyone, I'm Chris Palmer. On this edition, we're talking with independent filmmaker Robert Hamm from California. I saw him on this past year's Super Bowl. He was a Pat Tillman scholarship recipient, and he was part of four recipients that were honorary captains for the coin toss at this past year's Super Bowl. So I looked up some information about him and his uh, films that he's done, and it's a, a fascinating story, and I'm, I'm honored that he had the time to, uh, to talk with us. He's a military veteran, spent some time uh, filming, sharing stories of, of combat veterans. Um, also, his story about losing his wife to cancer. Uh, so I hope you enjoy uh, my conversation with Robert Hamm. Robert Hamm, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. It's good to be here. I appreciate the invite and reaching out. Can you share with me a little bit of uh, background information on yourself? You know, where you grew up, a little bit about your parents. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I was born to two artists. My dad is from Texas and my mom is from Michigan and they met in Vegas while my dad was playing with Cher. Um, so he was, he played with Cher for a few years when she was just after she broke up with Sonny and started her stint in Vegas and he was one of her main background singers. And, uh, so they met there and then I was the fruit of their love. I grew up in Los Angeles where they both worked and my mom went to CalArts. So I was really in a very artistic world. You know, I listened, my dad played music. He's a, a multi-instrumentalist, saxophone, harmonica, flute, keyboard, still plays. Today he's playing with Ringo Starr and Toto right now. He's on the road with Toto. Um, so, you know, I always grew up with thinking that art was a, you know, a, a way that you could make your life forward. You know, my dad always said, maybe not choose music though, because it was a tough, it is a tough business. So instead I chose film, which is equally as difficult. But um, yeah, that's kind of, uh, and just, you know, grew up making films and, I got my first high eight camera when I was, you know, in junior high and just started making movies with my friends and, you know, that kind of stuff. And even though your father said, you know, maybe don't choose music. I mean, did you have an interest in music at that point? I played drums. I played drums. I was like a kind of rebellious, loud music kind of guy. I listened to like Rage Against the Machine and that kind of music in the 90s. So I always just jammed out in, in and then I was in the band in high school. I was in the marching band. So uh, we were the uh, Highlanders of Granada Hills. So we also wore kilts when we were playing for the football team. So that was kind of fun. And so at that age, uh, when you were telling me you had a high camera, you started making films. I mean, at that point, you knew that's what you wanted to do? You know, when you're going through those stages of life, you, you kind of have an idea of maybe what you're interested in, but you know, it's just, you don't know. I, I like, I went through a stage where I wanted to make action figures for a while. I was into action figures and I would like, was into clay and doing that kind of stuff. And then I was like, I was into, gra you know, then I, I first took my editing class when I was 16 on Adobe Premiere, like early, early stages. And that's when I started to realize like, how you could start to put stories together and put images that I was shooting on camera together. But um, I actually went to college to be a, uh, a history major because I thought I was going to be a teacher or something. And then I just had an epiphany one day. It was just like, no, you got you to gotta follow your heart and do, and do film as best as you can. So, um, you know, that's what, I, that's what I went from there. But, you know, when you're in high school, I was chasing girls and getting in trouble at school and just, you know, playing in the band and 
Uh, I played ice hockey, so I was just busy with life, and I thought I was going to go to college and play hockey for a bit, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And was there, when you kind of were set on, okay, filmmaking, was there, was it movies in Hollywood? Was it just storytelling? Was it documentaries? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do in that industry? Yeah, I mean, like so many people that love filmmaking like i grew up with some of the great the great films of the 80s and the 90s i was a big spielberg fan i mean i remember when i watched saving private ryan in the theater at 16 and my grandfather had fought in in world war in world war ii and it just hit me like the power of cinema like braveheart like i watched braveheart and i felt like it had changed my life you know uh i grew up and my mom always tried to get me into acting you know i got my but i wasn't really an actor i took the the, the headshots and stuff and you know, I loved going to Universal Studios and do the backlot tour. And I play, I was like, you know, acting and doing stuff in theater. So it was always kind of there. Um, and I was just, I just love movies. I just love going to, you know, when I was growing up, we still had uh, drive-in movie theaters. And we, you know, we had a big one over in the valley that eventually got torn down and turned into a, just a megaplex, you know, movie theater. But I'd love to go and watch the double features and was always into, um, just the power of storytelling and it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I realized you know and I always felt like I was on the other side of the tracks of Hollywood I always kind of felt like Hollywood was over there Hollywood was kind of for the rich kids and I just grew up in a low middle-class family you know we didn't have a lot of money and I, I never really thought it was something that I could really achieve but I tried my best to break in you know right. Can you walk me through that time in your life, you know, where post 9-11 and kind of what led you into a military career? Yeah. I had just started at, you know, I was a really horrible student in high school. Uh, basically graduated high school with like a 2.4 and I think I barely got that. Um, and so there was only like a couple colleges that I could get into. And so I went to like a, a you know, a really private Christian college that kind of helped like, I guess, straighten out my, my, um, my academic world. And I had just started there, kind of lost in life, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And, you know, September 11th happened. I was just a, a month into my college years. I was 18. And, you know, it was, it was a big moment for, for all of America. For, for me, as just sitting there, still living with my parents, just watching the towers crumble and feeling completely helpless, feeling sad, feeling like angry at whoever did this. Um, all of the feelings and remember I remember going to the grocery store later that day just to pick up some stuff for my mom and everybody was just like when you made eye contact with somebody they just shook their head just like yeah I feel the same way you feel right now all of the things and it was a profound moment and but I you know I kind of moved on I had talked to my I, ta I had talked to a recruiter a few months after that but I was still in college trying to figure out my life you know, I was starting to get interested in this girl who ended up being my wife and I had to switch. I just wanted to focus on school and I, you know, I graduated uh, college in 20, when I was 22 in 2005 and my last semester of college, I studied abroad in Israel and I was there for about five months and that was the first time that I saw the Middle East up close. I saw the ancientness of the conflict between the people there. Um, there's something very profound about that part of the world, especially in Israel and Jerusalem and how it's shared by all of the major, you know, religions of the world. 
Um, and I basically took my camera around and interviewed anybody who would listen to me I, and, you know, and who would talk to me because you know, a lot of people didn't speak English, but whoever would, I would interview. And I interviewed Israelis and Palestinians and just anybody. And I was just trying to get to the bottom of like, where does this hate come from? I didn't get like, I was American. I thought everybody loved America. Like, why would they do this to us? Like, where does this come from? And I thought that, you know, and on that journey, I started to realize a few things. A, that this conflict is ancient and long, and there's a lot going to it, very complex. That it's, it's religious, but it's also economic, that it's also geographic, um, and, and that all of these people were human. Like, I went to Israel with a very tainted view of who the Palestinian people were, as an example. A very Western idea of who they were as a people. And as I journeyed out into the regions of Palestine, I also saw them as human. And I also saw the Israelis as human and the conflict that they've dealt with and the, and the history of the genocide. So after that, I came home, married my wife, and floundered in Hollywood for a while. I was a production assistant. I was an intern. I did extra work. I was, in, I was a Marine in Flags of Our Fathers with Clint Eastwood. I remember there was one time, I always like to say that I got directed by Clint Eastwood because I was one of the Marines like, like doing something as an extra, and he literally said, hey, you, move from here to there. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, that's it. This is my moment. Um, and I just did whatever I could, but uh, Hollywood was a hard nut to crack for me. I didn't enjoy some of the hierarchy of it, what I, what I had perceived, what I needed to do to get to where I wanted to be, and got a little jaded with some of the interactions I had, and just didn't have a, I don't know, I just didn't have enough knowledge, information, money, and experience to feel like I was going to make a dent in my career there. So one day I came home to my wife and I said, I think I'm going to join the Army. And of course she did not love this idea. Um, but then I, I had talked to my recruiter and they said, you have a degree, you could come in at a certain rank, you could come in as a specialist, which gives you a little bit more money, a little bit more whatever, and you could go in as a public affairs specialist, basically combat camera. And we could guarantee you that with if you come in. And I got a huge bonus because not a lot of people were joining at the height of 2007 because that was like the height of the Iraq war. So um, that was it. And then I was off, off to the military. <laughs> To be honest, none of us thought she was going to make it. She was so badly burnt. There's this awesome picture that I saw, I think it was on your website, of you, you're in your uniform, you have your your weapon in one hand you know which is there to defend yourself you know to take a life if you have to the other hand you've got a camera which is used to you know share the stories of lives of people um you know people that are putting their lives on the line for freedom you know and first you know i want to thank you you know for your service uh but what were your your thoughts or feelings when you did that combat tour in afghanistan i appreciate that thank you um um 
You know, the military has to train you to be a killer, to be a soldier, you know, they, and you do that in basic training. It's, it's just like, it's an indoctrination that, that you go through when you're in the military and you kind of, while you're going through it, you kind of realize it's a game, but it's a game for keeps. It's a game like if I don't listen to them, I could probably get killed. So, and you start to develop some bitterness. I mean, they, they, it, it, part of the process of preparing to go to war is kind of giving into your more animalistic nature. You know, you have to be prepared to kill someone and be, and, and to look at the other person as an enemy, um, which is very conflicting ideas in my head. You know, I was like a Christian and I was like, not a pacifist, but I didn't want to hurt anybody per se, but I still had that anger and bitterness of 9-11 behind me. Like, it, it, like those were the things that we talked about when we were preparing. Like, remember what happened. Like, this is who we're going. We're going, at least in Afghanistan, I know that Iraq is a, is a complicated, different thing. Um, but when you're going to, preparing to go to Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda and Taliban are the bad guys and we're going to help the good guys and this is what we're doing. Um, and one of the things I talk about in my film about my interpreters, Interpreters Wanted, is, is the dichotomy between like the people that we're trying to help and, and the enemy that we're there. And sometimes, similarly in Vietnam, they don't wear uniforms. You don't know who it is, so you're kind of suspicious of everybody. So you're always, you're always on edge and you're always ready to kill, basically, you know? And I kind of like, I had an advantage. Well, I thought it was an advantage. You know, infantry guys are a different breed. Like they go to shoot, you know, that's their, that's their job. I wasn't an infantryman. I was a paratrooper, so I went to airborne school. I was, I was connected. I, was a, I deployed with an infantry unit. So there was an airborne infantry unit that I was attached to and that they were, I trained with them and everything. But I was like a combat camera guy. And sometimes I had to prove myself to be there with them because they don't want a guy that's going to be afraid and not fire when, when fired upon. So I had to like give them the confidence that I was a soldier first, but I carried both my main job, just like a mortarman's main job is to be a mortarman. You know, EOD guy's main job is to EOD, to, to, to defuse these bombs. Like my job was to try to capture the video, to tell the story of what these guys are doing and to take it home and to try to figure out a way to express that story to the family members and to America. That's what we were doing, you know. And uh, that's what I tried to do. And sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're there, there's definitely conflicting ideas that, that occur. There's definitely things that happened that I didn't film because that was conflicting with the kind of story that I wanted to, wanted to tell, you know. And that's, that's the tragedy of war. And, and you are in a war zone. So is it, was it difficult for you to, I'd be thinking, you know, you want to normally think about, okay, how does this angle look? Am I getting this, the sound, all it, but you're in a war zone. So is it hard to, to concentrate on what, on the, the video aspect? Yeah. At first, um, yeah, uh, you know, I always thought to myself, boy, Afghanistan is so beautiful and what I'm seeing is so amazing. I wish I could get a shot from up there or I wish I could get a shot from over here. But like when you're a soldier, you have to do, you have, you, you have to be aware that you could also, you know, get blown up and shot and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, you go into these missions prepared as best as you can. You know, you go in with your camera. It's combat, com uh, you know, it's, Conflict reporting, combat report, reporting, you know, you go in with all your batteries and all your, your, 
your your things and your you know you try to mic I tried to mic up guys you know I'd go I'd, I'd give them mics before I'd go and bring tons of battery and that's my that was my gear and that's what I tried to do and there were times where I filmed things um, looking back that were a little bit uh, insensitive because you don't realize it when you're doing it you're just filming um, and there's also times where I wish I had shot footage of things that I didn't because of just the culture of the military sometimes. Oh, that's, that's pretty close. So I did a film called Attack on the Fourth of July, which is on my website, and um, it was a, about a 30-minute documentary, and it was about a huge attack that had happened on a combat outpost. Um, I wasn't there, but they had filmed some of it on some of their small phone cameras and the Taliban had actually recorded it from multiple angles. And it was a huge attack. They almost got overran and it was really brutal. They lost two guys, Justin Casillas and Aaron Fairburn were killed. Justin received the Silver Star for trying to save Aaron's life. They were mortarmen. Uh, it was a really hard day. I showed up to that base about two weeks after that attack while, the guy, while it was real, still really fresh. And I interviewed them and I was there for a couple weeks. So I even had them do like recreations, you know. I had them shooting stuff and running ammo and that kind of stuff. And we kind of had, we tried to have as much fun as we could considering that we were telling a story about a really difficult thing. But, um, you know, that, so I did have opportunities where I could kind of stage stuff. But, you know, most of the time it was just get what you can get. And I'm sure there's many uh, stories that you've been able to tell uh, of the courageous men and women, you know, that have served. Um, is there one person, you know, one story that still, like, you think of right now that's on the, you know, the most important? Well, they're all important, but one that you really remember as, as being really special. That period of time I'm the most proud of because I think it's the most watchable. You know, you're always trying to make films that people will watch and that will resonate. Um, and it tells, it, it does delve into the story of, of two guys that I think about often. You know, when you lose guys at war, they stay perpetually young. You know, there's like Justin was 19 and Aaron was, or Justin was 20 and Aaron was 19, you know. And like, I'm now 40. I am, what, 15 years removed from my tour there and I got to continue my life and these kids didn't, you know. And, um, I did another film about a guy called Pat Patrick Devo. He was 28, and I made. Uh, he was our first killed in action guy that we were there, and it was one of the early stories I did. And it was one of those films that you know maybe wasn't my best, but it resonated with the guys that that were there that knew him, and they all like appreciated that I, I that I tried to tell that story as best I could to honor Patrick. Um, and 10 years later. Uh, I got an email on YouTube or Facebook or somewhere uh, from his mom and for, on the day that he had died, so 10 years on the day. And she wrote me and she's like, I could never bring myself to watch that film when you had first made it. But now 10 years out, I finally watched it and it, it, it healed her a little bit and she expressed that to me. And there's no healing ultimately when you lose a child at war. It's a perpetual always will linger and it's the pain and suffering that Gold Star families have forever. But to feel like she felt honored 
that a story about her son is told that people will still say his name. I mean, that's what it is. It's like we don't, they don't want us to forget them, at the very least. I mean, they want their sons and daughters back, but that is a sad tragedy of war. And how did that, how did that make you feel, you know, reading that from her? It's healing for me, too, because, like, war had a big effect on me. Like, I didn't even realize, you know, like, you know, a lot of folks, we're, we're very, we're much more open about talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. We're much more talking about anxiety and depression. Even 10, 15 years ago, we weren't really talking about it that much. I mean, I, I was one of the first filmmakers in the military that did a story talking about, in the modern post-9-11 era, talking about post-traumatic stress uh, very viscerally and like what it, what it was happening. And when I get reactions from people, when we share our stories, like that helps us heal. When we feel heard, you know, that's what happens when we, when we go through traumas, whatever it is. We're, we're, even if it's like childhood trauma to a horrible car accident or whatever, when, when we can, ex and that's what storytelling is supposed to be, like sharing our story with others, having somebody receive that, feeling your pain, and just saying, I'm sorry, and giving you a hug. And that starts the healing process of like coming out of the horror of war, coming home, being heard, and kind of like moving on. So... Uh, those types of reactions really, really help me and give me a sense of, you know, at least, you know, that uh, somebody watched it and had, you know, had a good reaction to it. Right. And, you know, I assume once you've served in the military, it's not something that you just like, maybe another job, you're like, eh, you know, you forget about it. That's like a part of you, I assume, forever. So what drives you to keep, you know, sharing these stories, even though you're out of the military, you're still involved in making documentaries and videos, films about the military and those that serve? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes I ask that question to myself because um, sometimes the veteran community, it, there's a lot, it's a, it could be very heavy. It could be very heavy. Um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of Gold Star moms. Uh, when you sit down with a Gold Star mom, which Gold Star mom means, or a Gold Star dad or a Gold Star family means that they lost someone at war. And... Um, they're just incredible people, incredibly resilient. And they're, they are, you know, families that have lost somebody to war, they're national treasures to us. And what they want, from what my experience when I've talked to them, is they want their sons and daughters to be remembered. They want them to be, they want their names to be heard and talked about. It's not awkward for them to talk about their sons and daughters. And they might get emotional, it might get sad, but they don't want to avoid, they don't, they like to talk about it, you know. Um, and, um, and I think that's what drives me because like we, they become nameless, faceless numbers. And uh, now that we've kind of like ended these wars, I feel an, America has an obligation to talk about it, to think about it, to relive it. Because if it's hard for other people who weren't there to relive it, just imagine what it was for the people that were there dealing with it. And when we could make that connection, I mean, also, this is another sad tragedy of the veteran community. One guy that I served with, uh, five deployments, he has like two or three children who are 18, 19-ish, and a wife. You know, he committed suicide about a month and a half ago. We've now lost more guys to suicide uh, from my unit, then we're killed in action. 
there is a devastating effect that's happening. Uh, and it's, it's been happening for a long time. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that's been happening in the veteran community. We're losing a lot, the, the highest demographic of veterans committing suicide are Vietnam veterans. You know, and so I think as Americans who we who, you know, we all sent we all were complicit to a certain degree, no matter who we voted for, you know, we were we, we sent boys and girls to, to war that the least that we could do is tell their stories, talk about them, honor them, uh, take care of our veterans through the VA give them the, the, the access to health care and mental health services that they need. And um, because not only is that the moral right thing to do when soldiers come back from war, but when, when veterans can heal and come out of it and be embraced by the outer community, they can be amazing leaders. They, can, they, can they could fix a lot of the problems that we're seeing in our society. Uh, they've done extraordinary things under huge amount of stresses during war. And um, I think they could help us fix some of these problems that we're dealing with in America right now. So, uh, and we want them to do that. And, and, and that's the right human thing to do. So there you go. I'm off my soapbox, but that's, that's kind of why I want, I, I do it. Yeah. I totally agree and totally makes sense. Um, so coming out of the military for you you know what was your next chapter what, what did you do uh so i didn't so in 2013 i was looking at what i wanted to do next i had been in the military for seven years i had done a lot that i have wanted to do and i basically could have done anything in the military i wanted to i could have gone anywhere i wanted to go or whatever and but once you get to a certain rank in my field you stop doing the video production and you start managing lower soldiers and letting them do it. And I didn't really want to do that. I, th I thought it was like, I still want to, I, I want to direct film. That's like what I want to do. And so I had to be honest with myself, but I was scared because the military can be very comforting in that it gives you all the things that you need. And I, I built a certain reputation in the military and I was fearful of leaving it. And I had a, I had a buddy of mine um, who was on his way out of the military. And he looked at me and, he, and I said, I don't know what I want to do. And he's like, you need to use your GI Bill. I'm like, okay, yeah, okay, I have my GI Bill. I never thought about going back. I already have a bachelor's degree. I don't really love school. Um, but okay, well, what? and he's like, you should just apply. Where, where would you go? If you could go anywhere, where would you go? I'm like, well, I'm from LA. I think the best film school in the world is USC. I got to go, to, I want to go to USC. He's like, you should just apply, just apply. So I'm like, okay, I listened to him and I applied it to, that was the only film school I applied to. And I did my interview with USC while I was in Malaysia on a, on a, on a trip doing work with, in, with the Malaysian army. And uh, they accepted me into film school and I basically started the month after I got out of, out of the army. And I moved back to LA with my wife and my kids. We, ha we had to move in with her parents for a bit while I was trying to, you know, straighten out my life because I wasn't going to go to work right away. And I started film school and boy, that was like a complete life shift, like going from one world to a multiverse universe. It was like completely different. 
while I was at USC, you know, I was trying to make a whole, whatever, you know, trying to explore my artistic voice and trying to make different films and tried to get my interpreter film off, off the ground. And I started a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for a scripted version of, interp of this interpreter film I wanted to make for my thesis. I had written, my thesis ended up being, I wrote a feature about a uh, female combat camera woman um, who I had served with. And so I had all of this stuff that I had graduated with. And I kind of had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about Hollywood and also a little bit of an ego. Because I was like, okay, I'm graduated USC with a master's. I have all these awards from the military. I have a combat deployment. Like, of course Hollywood is just going to eat this up. And I'm going to get something big and I'm going to go out. And I'm like, little did I know that that is not how Hollywood works. Um, so I had to kind of still start grinding again. I had to, you know, I had to try to go out and get jobs. Uh, I started doing whatever I could. I did a, I did a whole bunch of nonprofit films uh, in the veteran space because I was still wanting to be involved in that world. I had made another documentary called The Ranger with a, with a, about a uh, quadriplegic ranger and his his his. Uh, Problems with post-traumatic stress and coming back from the wars. I made that with a veteran com a military company. And then there was a couple of military veteran-oriented entertainment companies that started to spring up, and I started to do work for them. Started to develop my own projects and just kept grinding. And I'm still, I mean, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm still grinding. I'm still, like, I finally finished my interpreter documentary. It's called Interpreters Wanted. Uh, we're, we're, we're submitting it to film festivals and going to see where we could go with that. Um, and I'm really happy with it. Um, sadly, my wife passed last year with a rare form of cancer. And during that process, she was a very popular YouTuber. And during that process, I had filmed it and released a film about her. Uh, my first feature documentary called Made with Melanie, and it's on YouTube. And it's been doing really well, and I think it's a good honoring story for her. Very different than any kind of film I've ever made, but definitely you know, wanted to make that to honor her. Interpreters Wanted is my next documentary. And then I have some scripted stuff that I want to do. Uh, I have a couple documentaries that I'm working on still. And I also grind. I've been working for, uh, I've been doing video content for the, the Veterans Administration Hospital for the last several years as like a, as a subcontractor, just directing and doing a whole bunch of different documentaries. There's, I have a whole bunch of that stuff on my website too. Uh, simultaneously, I also have a couple scandal documentaries about some of the, the crap that's gone on in the VA too. So I have a, feel like a very nuanced perspective. There's some great people in the VA and then there's also some, there, just like every organization, right? There's like good and bad people everywhere. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm a single dad trying to raise my kids and do my, do my life. And, you know, I appreciate times like this where I get to share my story. Thank you so much for watching this edition of The Timeline. Please join us again as we continue our conversation with Robert Hamm.